Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Nestled in the Côte de Beaune, up against the hill of Corton, is the commune of pernon Vergeles. In the 700s, Charlemagne owned vineyards on the hill, and the history here is rich and peppered with Charlemagne legends. Soils are limestone-based, but iron-rich and tinted red in some areas, like Charlemagne's beard. Of its premier crews, the famed vineyard is Ile de Vergeles. The region produces about half red and half white wine, and is equally known for both, which makes it kind of a unique area in Burgundy, whose subregions usually specialize in one or the other. Once known for high-quality aligote, today it's becoming more and more well-known for aromatically rich Chardonnay that drinks great at three to five years, and Pinot Noir that has a spiciness to it. And the region has had somewhat of a quiet renaissance in recent years, if Appalachian attention is any indication of a region's growing importance, Pernan Vergeles had several premier crew vineyards added in 2002. But perhaps most useful for wine drinkers is the fact that Pernan Vergeles has become more popular as a semi-affordable Burgundy choice, as prices for many other well-known villages have skyrocketed in the last couple of decades. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who's doing great things in this area. Claude de Nicolai from Chandon de Briaille and Savigny Le Bon on the show in Burgundy. Hello, how are you? Hello, fine. Very good. Happy to be with you. Very nice to see you. So your domain is located in Savigny Le Bon in Burgundy. Yes, exactly. It's very nearby Bon, five kilometers out of Bon. It has been my family property for seven generations, and I would say even four generations of women. What were the origins of the domain? The domain used to be owned by the architect of the house where my parents live today. And in the 1830s, my ancestor decided to buy the, the properties. And since then, it has been always on my family business. And he was the architect of a part of Versailles. For the garden. The garden was designed by a student of Le Nôtre. And the house is from the 17th century, a lovely folie, we call that. And it's a beautiful human-sized house, not a castle. And they are lucky because my parents still live in there. 
What were the origins of vineyards at the property? Who started first buying vines? My great-grandmother started to buy a piece of land in Corton. She wanted to be one of the first to buy the Corton area, so she decided to, to sell more than 500 hectares of forest in the Haute-Côte. And uh, by the way, she was very clever because she bought four hectares of Corton at the same time, in fact. It was very important for us to have this uh, vineyard. So she started making wine right away, or did she sell the grapes? She was selling the grapes, yeah. At what point did it become a producer of its own wine? After the phylloxera. And then we were making the wines, but we were selling the barrels to Negociant at this time. That sounds pretty early, because that would be like, what, the 1920s? Yes, approximately, yeah. Because that's about the time when people first started the Domain Bottle in Burgundy, right? Some of them, yes, starting bottling. But uh, for us, it was too early to go directly to bottling. So the wines were made there in a great cellar, and uh, they were shipped after that in Bone or other areas. When was the first Chandon de Bray label on a bottle? Ah, it's a good question. We decided to bottle few vintages when my mother got married, in a case that the vintages were very, very good, like 59. So 59 was the one that was decided to be bottled for the family. So some Ile de Vergeles and Corton Bressande. So that's the only old label we have at the domain. And other vintages also were done in, later on in 66, I remember, 72. And then we started bottling completely in 78. And what was the impetus for that? The domain was getting more important. And my father wanted to sell wines abroad. So that's the reason why we decided to bottle. And the first market we had was United States. But that, oh, that's, okay. That's funny. <laughs> well, it's come back around full circle. Yeah, exactly. Quite amazing. We were selling our wines here thanks to the Moite Chandon uh, company because my father was related with them. So uh, it was a good way to sell our wines at this period, but not anymore. Because Chandon is in Moet and Chandon and it's in the name of your domain. Yeah. The cousin of my father, Frédéric Chandon de Briaille, used to be the manager of Moet et Chandon. They just uh, shortened the name of Chandon. Instead of Chandon de Briaille, they called it Chandon to be easier for the customers, I believe. So that's the reason. But it's the same family. So that's the reason why uh, we have a family link, only family link and not any uh, business link. Uh, the only contract we had to sign with Moët et Chandon is that we were not allowed to make any sparkling wine. So just still wine for us. That must have been an amazing way to get into the market in terms of piggybacking on their distribution network. Yeah, it was funny because it was just starting in the 70s and uh, we were one of the first to show our wines, especially in New York. And my father was quite a good marketing man already at this period. So that was great. Yeah, he had great fun. What was your entry into the producer yourself? I mean, why did you decide to? Uh, I decided to get on the domain when I was 18, uh, realizing that my mother was doing such a great job there. And I realized that I was working with her in the vineyard and being uh, very involved already in the, in the wine, vinification especially. And I was more uh, interested in uh, making wine than selling it at first. So I decided to do studies in enology and viticulture, both in Bonne and Dijon. And then my, I traveled around a little bit, making training in Oregon and then in New Zealand to learn more about Pinot Noir overseas. It was very, very interesting for me. And then I arrived at the domain in 91 with all of this 
great things in my mind. And my mother said to me, okay, do you want to stay there or travel more? And I said, no, I really want to go on with you. And so we worked together for 10 years. So in a way, it was a chance to be close to your mom. Very close, yes. It, it was very important for me because she learned by experience and I learned more by theory. So the two of them were completing each other very well. What were some of the important things that she told you? I think I, wa I was really more looking at her than anything else. She was very clever in uh, working on a very natural way without doing any technology with our wines. And that was very interesting because when we see our wines today, it's really the way I really want my wines to show. Did you have any other influences at the time? Were there things that really shaped your vision for what you wanted to do? I visited a lot of winemakers to see how they were working. And I met a lot of winemakers thanks to Patrick Bees, who was very kind with me. And uh, he introduced me to this little association called Domaine Familiaux de Bourgogne. And thanks to him, I knew there all the best winemakers from Burgundy. He was part of a tasting group there. Exactly. That was really great. And today it's funny because I'm the president of the association. So I can't say thanks to Patrick because he's not there anymore. But it's thanks to him that uh, I'm in Burgundy, maybe. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah he kind really. of welcomed you in and showed you oh, yes, what sure. it was like. For sure, yes. Because you're both seven producers yeah, in the exactly. same area. We were neighbors. And I feel like he also evolved a little bit in terms of his winemaking, you know, in terms of what he wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. He was quite uh, intelligent and uh, very clever in the wine process. And uh, he wanted the wines also to be very pure. He was doing the same kind of work as us in the winemaking, using whole cluster, for example, and uh, taking care of his vineyard the same way. So, yeah, we were close friends. Whole cluster <coughs> was being used before you got there at your domain. Yep. My mother was already using that kind of work, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, I associate that period of time when it became less fashionable. Yeah, it's funny. But uh, yeah, my mother was also, I believe, maybe impressed by De Monte wines. And for her, this style of wine was the wine that she wanted to make in our domain. So that's why she really wanted to introduce a whole cluster and no new oak. Hubert De Monte were really a, a very good winemaker. Did you ever meet him? I never met yes, him. Yes, yes, yes. He was really a very intelligent man and... He was just uh, both intelligent and simple, which was great. And when I was visiting him with my mother, tasting with him, he was so simple, so nice and gentle. And he, he helped us a lot. So you worked together for 10 years with your mother. Yes, exactly. She retired in 03, so a little more, 12 years. And she started with 84. She had done a great job because the domain was in poor condition when she arrived. The vineyard was really not healthy and the people working for us was not very, very nice with us. And so she decided to go by herself in the vineyard, working by herself, taking a team with her. And since then, she had just uh, done something just crazy about the domain. Now the quality of the vines are there and it's important for us to, to have that. And it seems like some key parcels for the appellations that Oh yes, work. we are lucky to have very good parcel and large parcel. We are very lucky for that because uh, Savigny Lavière is uh, two hectares and sixty. Pernon Ile de Vergelès is four hectares in one block, and Corton-Bresson is one hectare and a half. So we are very lucky because for Burgundy, it's rare to get this size of vineyard. Usually, it's much smaller. In terms of the Corton-Bresson, it, it's interesting because you make white and red off the Bresson. Yeah, I think the white is a mistake. When my mother planted the, the reds in the seventies. 
the nursery was lacking of Pinot Noir and they asked her if she was okay to plant some Chardonnay. And she said to herself, okay, why not? Because I don't have any white at the domain. So I tried to make good wine from it. And uh, I would say it's not a mistake because the wines are just tremendous. But I believe that the whites from Corton are very good upper hill. But even though the Bresson is a funny white, uh, the Corton is a funny white. I shouldn't say Bresson because Bresson is for red. And we decided to blend it with another parcel called Corton Chaume. Chaume uh, is a parcel below the Char Charlemagne, so it helps to get freshness to the wine. And the blending is just unbelievable, drinkable young, younger than Charlemagne, and uh, can age very well. So that's a, a good point for the wine. Bresson Red is for me the heart of the hill of Corton. You can really enjoy the wine, also young, like the white, but it can age forever. The soil is very interesting there because you have the clay, and then below this clay you have this mother rock where the roots just bumped into it and uh, get this very nice vibrancy to the wine, in fact. So the finish of the wine is fresh and elegant, and the middle is smooth. So the Bresson is really uh, the very best balanced Corton of the hill. Does it vary a lot in elevation, the Bresson? The Bresson is uh, 250 meters high. Claude du Roi is much higher, 300 meters. And you work that parcel as well? A very small parcel in Claude du Roi, yes. And how does that, because you bottle it separately, how does yeah. that expression show differently? The expression is very different just because of the soil, in fact. If you climb the hill yourself and you are there, you understand why the wine are so different. Because Bresson has this earthy and smoothy character from the clay, as the Claude du Roi has this minerals and floral and spicy character because the soil is much poorer. And so how does that show in bottle in terms of approachability? Which one? Ah, approachability, it's the thing not so easy to say because for me, Bresson and Claude du Roi has to be waited for a long time, but uh, on a different way. The Bresson is always nice to drink, that's the point. But the Claude du Roi, sometimes it can close up, so you should really forget it, leave it for a while, and then try it again. So Bresson is, is easier. It's easier to drink because you can open it without doing any mistake, even if you open it young. In terms of understanding the Hill of Corton, what is important to understanding it? It seems to have multiple exposures. It has facings into different communes. What should I know about working the hill? Corton is a, is a magical hill. It is a half in white, half in red. For me, the most important, interesting part of Corton is placed in the middle, middle of the slope, where the balance between the clay and the limestones help the wine to be very balanced. The bottom part, like for example Maréchaux, that we own also, is heavier. The quality of the tannins is a little thicker, and it's shorter in mouth, just because it's very clay soil. If you climb a little bit, and then that's suddenly a big difference. You, you find something more elegant, also big in structure, but with more elegance and more refined tannins. And the fact that you go higher, you get the wines more spicy, and sometimes even... Uh, lighter but uh, on the structure than the fruit so the the wine is showing a little more like the white wine that would be better to plant white i would say the top part it's a big hill so that's maybe the reason why it's not so famous but i believe we can make wonderful wines that are really i would say the frontier of Côte de Nuit you have uh, still the style of the Côte de Nuit but the elegance of the Côte de Beaune with this Corton i guess it would be against the burgundy idea but i think Given what you've described, there would be some temptation to blend the red parcels. 
because one is lower down and has more of that clay, one is higher up, and then one is in the middle. Have you ever experimented with just a Corton Rouge? I would do that if really the vintage would be bad. We had problem like hail or like a disaster or a very small crop because it's the only way to make Corton. But otherwise, the best thing is really to separate the Lyodi because for me, they have their own signature. And it means that they really show themselves so differently that it's a shame to blend them, really. And you do make Cortin Charlemagne. Yeah, we have a very small land of Charlemagne. We make only one barrel every year, and it's placed on Corton Renard area. So if it were red wine, you would get a Renard. But as it is planted in Chardonnay, we get a Corton Charlemagne wine. Have you ever thought that when the vines get older that you might do some replanting on the hill in terms of your parcels, in terms of changing color? I haven't think about that, but I believe I would not change that because for me, the lower part of Corton has to be planted in red and the top part in white. Why not planting the Corton Clos du Roi in white? That would be a, something maybe possible, but I'm not sure it's classified in Charlemagne. So maybe the top part, which is called Le Corton, is allowed to be called Corton Charlemagne, but I'm not sure about Clos du Roi. So let's stay in red. It's beautiful like that. When you pick in the Corton, are the harvest times earlier or later than the Savigny and the Pernod parcels? Usually they are the first to be picked because it's a microclimate there. So they ripe earlier. They have less uh, cool weather temperature, cool winds compared to Pernod and Savigny just because of the place of the hill. Uh, Corton is in front and Pernod and Savigny are just behind. So that's normal that they ripe later. And usually I even start with the middle part of Corton, which means our Corton Maréchaud, because they're hot spot. It's Maréchaud means that the place can be hot or humid. And when it's hot, it's really hot. And you need to be careful because the ripeness can go over the ripeness. So it means that the fruit has to be picked at the right time. So usually early. And then we climb the hill. We start with Maréchaud, then we go with Bressande. Starting usually with the younger vines because they ripe earlier, they lose the acidity earlier, and then finishing with the Clos du Roi. But sometimes we go on Pernon before picking Clos du Roi because Clos du Roi is very high on the slope. Is the vine material for the domain, is it fairly consistent? Is it the same kinds of clones from the same sort of nursery or no? All the vines in Savigny were planted in the 50s. So at this time, we were using some massal selection, buying them from Tolobo. They used to have a nursery. So all our Savigny, our five hectares of Savigny are uh, Massal Selection. Uh, Pernon is mixed with Massal Selection from our own selection, coming from Bressande, and also some different clones. Same with Corton, in fact. So it's half and half, I would say. Pinot Fin is a specificity from the Pinot Noir clones. They are a specific clone where they're more refined and more smaller grapes that we get. And usually they make very refined wine. That's what we look for, really. Them. We mix classic clone and Pinot Fin. You have some of that? We do have, yeah. Because it seems to come through sometimes in the wines. My image of what that clone tastes like, I feel like I, I'm getting it. Great. Like, uh, yeah, we do have a little bit of that. Uh, but we also have a little bit of also of SO4. At this, there was a period where there was just this uh, choice to take. So some of our vineyards are planted in SO4, which is a bad thing. We would love to remove it. When you do trellising, is it fairly consistent amongst those three things in terms of the height of the trellis and how you do the pruning, or is it different to each commune? 
Usually it's the same for the three commons. We love to do the pruning late, first of all, because with the biodynamic work, we believe that the later you prune, the better you get because the, the blood of the vines are really down and deep in the, in the soil. Um, and we train them quite in a high way. We want the vines to be quite high. Because for the ripening of the fruit, it's better to have more leaves. So we try to keep the training quite high, like two meters high. Is that higher than your neighbors? Yeah, much higher. It's important to get that in order to have a really uh, healthy crop and uh, we can uh, have buds with more distance to each other. And thanks to that, we don't have grapes that are too nearby. So we avoid the problem of Suzuki. So Suzuki fly is, is something that we are very worried about. And uh, the fact that we have a large training helps the vines to be very, very clean. Does that affect the aromatics, the height of the trellis? I think so, yeah. The more leaves you get, maybe the more fruitiness you, you get from the grapes. So when you look at Perno and your parcel there, you have some key parcels, one of which is the Ile de Vergely, which again, you have a, a large holding of for the crew, kind of like you do for Bresson, and you make both white and red there. Yep. Ile de Vergelès is for me uh, my little baby. I, I love this area because it's, it's really nice to work there, first of all, because you see all day long the hill of Corton. It's really beautiful. And then it's a place where it's quite windy, so very healthy. The vines are happy to be there. I don't know why. It's really a place that I like very much. The soil is different from the bottom to the top. So that's why I believe we make very expressive wines from this soil. They really show their, the tension of the soil, the spiciness also from the soil. And the wines are very elegant. I really like this area. And how would you compare that crew to some of the crews that have similar names like Les Vergelais? Les Vergelais and Ile de Vergelais are very different. The question is just uh, the altitude in the slope. Les Vergelais is just below, so the style of the wine is very different with more uh, clay. So I call this kind of wine more bistro wine. And the middle slope wines from Ile de Vergelais, I call them gastro wines. So is it the road that separates the exactly, two crews? Exactly, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yep. And then what about the expression of white and red from that crew? How does it show? Well, they show quite the same. It's funny because if you would taste them blinded, you would recognize, of course, if it's a white or red, but they have the same spiciness and the same freshness and elegance. So it's maybe because we, we work the same way the vines. We vinify quite naturally the wines, same for red and white. So it's interesting to have both colors at the same place, really. My mother was clever to do that in the 80s, get rid of one hectare of red and planting some Chardonnay to replace. And I'm sure she done something very smart because uh, the whites are as good as the reds. And I feel like that's an unusual decision in Burgundy, to have two colors planted in the same It's crew. very rare, in fact. There are not so many. The only one I know maybe is my, from my husband with the Clos des Mouches, quite famous Clos des Mouches, where they have seven hectares of red and seven hectares of white. Uh, I'm not sure that you could do that anywhere else, maybe in Chassagne, because they still have red and whites. Well, it's quite fantastic to have both colors, really. So when you work parcels in Savigny versus working parcels in Pernel, what kind of differences do you see generally at the commune level? Not so much differences, in fact, because they're very nearby. You just have to walk around the hill to get the Pernon. So I would say the style of, of the work there is quite equal. And uh, yeah, there is not so much difference, in fact. But it seems like the finished wines taste different. Yeah, yeah. I believe it's just a question of uh, soil and uh, 
exposure maybe also. Savigny Lavier is more south, Ile de Vergeles is east. So the difference are coming from there for sure. And uh, I believe that each vines really show where it comes from. So when I find that more chord of austerity in the Pernel rather than the 70, that might be because the 70 that you're talking about is facing south and so getting more sun. Yeah, I think it's that. And it's maybe, I don't know why, but it has been always like that. The Savigny is more fruity than the Pernon. The Pernon is more spicy, more peppery, white pepper. I believe the, the Savigny tastes more uh, lighter style, as uh, Ile de Vergeles and Les Vergeles are tasting more uh, masculine and more tannic wines. So very different. It's certainly a question of winds also, winds and cooler climate from east exposure. So yeah, we think that uh, Lavier is very well exposed. So when the grapes reach the winery, do you have a different approach for grapes from Corton versus the Lavier versus Ile de Vergelet? When they arrive, we decide if we do some whole cluster or not, depending on the ripeness of the fruit. Also, the vineyard comes from, so Corton is separated by different ages of vines. So if the vines are younger, we would not keep the stems because we believe that the stems are too young, too green to be kept. As an older vineyard, we would say, okay, let's go with whole bunch this year because it's nice, because it's healthy, because it's ripe enough. The decision is taken really when the grapes arrive there. And then each vine has his uh, tank in the winery. So we can fit all our grapes in the winery. The 14 hectares in total can go in the winery. And do you do a cold soak on a reds? Uh, no, we don't do that. We do a pre-carbonic maceration, I would say. So oh, okay. It's not very cold. It's 15 degrees. I prefer that because it's a better way to extract the fruit. And then the fermentation starts naturally. So we use uh, the natural yeast. The grapes come in and they crush the bottom grapes in the vat and that starts a carbonic exactly. situation. Yeah, yeah. And so then with the stems, that must be nice because they can balance each other out. The stems give more textural, more bitterness, and then you have that pure red fruit from the carbonic. Exactly. It's a combination of, of the two. The fermentation happens after this carbonic maceration, and then that's the time where we extract the right tannins from the stems and from the skins. We try not to be too strong during the fermentation as regards the plunging. We still plunge by foot, so it means that we are very gentle with the stems, so we don't aggress them. And uh, I'm very happy because this year we will have a vertical press, the raw soils of the press. So we will be able to get very nice pressing. And I believe the tannins are going to be even more refined and expressive. So I'm very happy with this new investment for the winery. So you've been using a pneumatic for both white and red in the past. Yes, yes. Pneumatic press, yeah. And what made you choose to do a vertical press? I've tried the vertical press two years ago and I was very happy with the results, so I decided to myself to buy it, so buy it for this vintage. Unfortunately, this vintage is going to be very small because we had some frost. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. terrible. Yeah, that's life. We won't make any Savigny, we believe. A little bit of Pernon and hopefully Corton is, is safe. In terms of the press, what are the advantages of using a vertical press? In what way does it affect things? It's a very good press because uh, you don't have end of press. You can use the total amount of what is coming from the press. So we can blend right away the free-range juice with the pressed juice because it's so nice, so clean, that it's helpful for us to have a good blending right away. Do the mallows happen fairly quickly? 
It depends on the level of acidity, but usually if they are uh, low acids, like in 14, for example, the malolactic happens quite right away, especially if the cellar are still hot, because it's helpful for the bacteria to, to work. Sometimes it happens a, a year after, like 13 was the opposite, was high in acid. So we even had to heat a little bit the cellar to get the bacteria, the natural bacteria goes on and do their work. But I'm guessing you don't stir the leaves. No, we don't stir the leaves. We leave the leaves during all the barrel aging time. So that means one year. So we are not obliged to use sulfur, thanks to that. So we try to use sulfur as late as possible and as little as possible. So does that also mean you're trying not to rack? We just rack once. We don't want to rack more, uh, except if there is some reduction in the wines. But usually we try not to move the wines. We are very gentle with them. If they don't need, we don't touch them. Do you find more reduction of certain parcels than others? Yes, yes, that's true. Usually the parcel coming from very clay soil have more reduction than the one coming from a lighter soil. So Corton-Bresson, for example, has more reduction. pernon les vergeles more reduction than Ile. And Savigny-Fourneau, more reduction than Les Lavières. It's funny, huh? And that's pretty consistent year to year. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's even more when the yields are low. It's very evident. At what point do you do assemblage? At the end of the barrel aging, we would taste every barrel and see if they have uh, the capacity of being in their level of appellation. If not, we would declassify. So that means that the blending are done uh, in the cellars first by tasting them. And after that, we, we blend them. Uh, it stays not so long in, in tank. It stays just one month and then we bottle. So pretty much right before bottling, you do assemblage. Yeah. And do you do fining? Usually not. It depends on the vintage, but uh, if the vintage is not very uh, clean after the barrel aging, or if, uh, for example, we have uh, some harder tannins from cooler climate vintage, we would use some egg white, organic egg whites, of course. And for the white, sometimes we have to use bentonite, but it's very rare. Usually our cellars are very cold, so the clarification is, is natural, and usually we don't need to find. For the Chardonnay-based wines, is it all Chardonnay or is there ever another grape variety involved? Ah, it's, it's a nice uh, thing to ask. Uh, we have 99% of Chardonnay. We just have few rows of Pinot Blanc in Pernod Ile de Vergeles that my mother planted in the 80s because at this time the Chardonnay was not ripening very well. The weather was cooler. But because of the global warming with my brother, we decided to keep it separate and for fun, we decided to make an orange wine with it. Oh, really? Yep. You're like the only person in Burgundy, I think. <laughs> I think so, but it's fun. It's real fun. And uh, we vinify the wine uh, in a big tonneau, in a big barrel, a 600 liters barrel that we open at the top. And we do um, a fermentation for 10 days. And then we press. And then it stays one year in barrel. And we bottle it without the sulfur. How many times have you made that wine? Just two vintages, 12 and 14. What do you think so far? Oh, I think it's interesting. People are enjoying it. We are not exporting it at the moment. It stays in France. But maybe this year it's going to be a, a new thing to do. Well, to you know who's going to buy some when you bring it here. Uh, this nice. guy. Uh, thanks. That's nice. <laughs> in terms of the stages of the domain, I think you outlined really well what your mom brought to the equation. But under you and your brother... What do you think has changed over the course of the domain since, say, 04? 
We have tried to evolve on the right way uh, farming. My mother believed already that uh, organic was the way to go. And uh, we decided to go even further by uh, working with biodynamic in 05. And uh, for three years now, we have decided to replace the sulfur with uh, low-fat milk. So we spray low-fat milk in our vineyard just preventively to avoid the oidium. And for the mildew, we are using uh, half copper because it's not easy to get rid of copper completely and uh, a touch of essential oil of orange. It's still in experiments, but it looks to be efficient, so we'll see. So it's like a, a citrus oil. It is, yeah. And with the milk, is that a standard idea? I haven't heard that before. It's still experimenting, but we believe that the casein just uh, destroy the fungus. And as we spray it, like a cloud spray, it doesn't do anything wrong on the berries or the leaves. It's really the right way to work. And uh, we believe it's going to work uh, forever. <laughs> we would love to because thanks to that, we don't use sulfur. And we also realize that without sulfur, we have less problem of reduction in the wines. Right, which you said in some parcels is, exactly, can exactly. be present. But, but you don't like to rack, so you'd like to get rid of the reduction. Yeah, exactly. You, but yeah. you'd like to do it naturally in the vineyard. As much as possible, yes. So how have you seen through the different warm and cool vintages that we've had since so far? How have you seen the old vines and the younger vines? How have they responded to biodynamics? Have you seen changes in the vineyard from how they responded? Yeah, they are quite clever because they, they are uh, much more uh, stronger against the disease, I would say. And they react very well when there is a big pressure. The, the most important thing is to get as much leaves as possible. To do that, we use a lot of 501, which is a mix of uh, silica, to help the, the leaves to be in good shape. And that refracts light. It's like crystals. Exactly. Exactly. And it helps the ripeness of the fruit as well. And has that sometimes been a problem in the cooler years? Or Yeah, exactly. When we have cool years and without light, without sun, we would use a lot of 501. It's very helpful. 015, for example, we did not use any because uh, there were enough light and even too much sun. So we were just using the 500 to help the soil to be in good shape. But uh, the rest of the year was just a use of uh, infusions of nettles and also uh, this low-fat milk to prevent the oidium. 15 was the high-pressure vintage of, with oidium. Oh, is that true? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because it, you thought it was dry, all the time, but in fact, no, the nights were very humid, so the fungus was very happy to come. But uh, we had to be very, very cautious on this fungus up to end of June. So when it comes to the wines that you make in bottle, how do you start approaching them? I mean, what would you drink first? What would you drink later? Well, it, again, it depends from the terroir. Um, usually... We start drinking the lower terroir because they're softer, smoother, and maybe less tannic with less acidity, but shorter in mouth. So uh, the wines coming from these areas, like Fourneau and Les Vergeles, we can enjoy them young. But uh, as soon as you, you get in middle slope, you, you have to wait for them, be more patient, and try to start drinking them after a minimum five years. What have been vintages where you've been very drawn to the result or where you found it more challenging? 
there was some very easy vintage to produce, like 09, 10 or so was easy to do. Some were more tricky, were more were harder because of the cool climate, mostly, or even hot climate, like 03. They were, we had to take decisions very quickly, come back from holiday quickly and get the winery ready for picking. And uh, so it was uh, quite challenging in 03, but very easy in 09. So yeah, we have to, to deal with different vintages now and re-questioning every year ourselves. What do you think is going to be important for you and for the domain in the future? The future is mostly in the ends of our kids now, in maybe more than in 15 years. So it's going to come very quickly. And I believe that the work we are doing now is going to be very helpful for our kids because they're going to have a very healthy soil thanks to all the work we are doing. They're going to understand what we do also. I, I hope so. And uh, they will keep the domain entire. That's the thing I really want. Try to have the, the this 14 hectares stay together and it's already a privilege to work there. And I hope they will keep the same uh, knowledge as my brother and I and have this uh, mentality of working on a natural way. That's what I say, really natural. And uh, I don't know if you know that we are using horses to plow the corton. So this is a point that we have to keep on because uh, it's funny, we go back to what was done before, but that I think it's what should be done and what should not have been changed. It's, it's really what life has to giving us. We have great terroir and we need to preserve them, really. Claude de Nicolai of Chandon de Brie would like to keep both the family and the domain all together. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Levy. See you. Bye-bye. Claude de Nicolai of Chandon de Brie and Savigny Le Bon of Burgundy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.